to Rinse and Repeat. I'm Carol Escaros. As I've mentioned before, from time to time, we air special editions, something that's on my heart that I want to share with y'all, even if it's blended in or a slight pause on our regular teaching schedule through the names of God. And this is one of those editions. Uh, I'm calling it Eyes Up, Praise First. And I think it really is born of a lesson God gave me prior to my daughter's incredibly invasive, difficult surgery in New York City about two weeks ago. Prior to leaving for New York, God really impressed this lesson on my heart, and I got to share it with some young people before we left. And as only God can do, He had taught me lessons He wanted me to have at the ready before I deeply, deeply needed them in New York City. Isn't that just God's economy? He was preparing me ever so perfectly for what was coming. And really, the way I want to begin this podcast is like this. For those of us who were born at the time, who are alive at the time, we probably remember where we were that fateful Tuesday morning of 9-11-2001. Many of us can say exactly where we heard the news that the first plane had hit the World Trade Center and what we did as we learned of the second plane hitting and the World Trade Center falling and subsequently what was happening in Pennsylvania and at the Pentagon. It was a dark, dark day in our history. And really, I was struck by that day in so many ways. I was on staff at Calvary Chapel Old Bridge in New Jersey at the time. And when the first plane hit, we all basically gathered around the television screens in the foyer of our church. And we were basically watching helplessly at what was happening. And then we collectively screamed as a tower fell and then the other tower fell. And we understood the enormity of what we were observing. We were watching loved ones of loved ones die right before our eyes. And honestly, it wasn't just what we knew was happening. It was all of the things we didn't know. There was so much uncertainty, whether or not another attack was imminent, what was happening with all of the ricin attacks. We just were so afraid and uncertain. And the reason why that moment in history strikes me so particularly is because at that moment in our community, the response was almost universal. People flocked to the church. They were running into the building in the middle of the day that Tuesday. And pouring their hearts out before God in the midst of the building that is the church, but in the midst of the plenary body of believers. We were on our faces that night, praying, crying out to God. The church was literally wall-to-wall people, people seeking God in the midst of that incredibly difficult moment for all Americans. And so that raises a question, I feel, Because why is it that God allows incredible crisis and trauma like that? We know that it's within God's power to protect and to keep us from such attacks. And we all would agree that there are so many things that God has protected us from, things that we probably don't even know about. So why is it that God allows moments like that? Why does he bring us to a place where we are that powerless, that helpless, that broken? I meditated on it quite a bit, and I feel like God often allows things like that in order to demonstrate that He alone is God, 
and that we are entirely and deeply dependent on him, whether we see it or not. See, it's one thing to know God in theory, right? To go to church to know about him. And I know many of us listening grew up in church, and we went week after week because it was just what we do. And it's really one thing to do that as a habit, one thing to know Bible stories like Noah's Ark or Daniel in the lion's den, but it's quite another thing to know God the way you do when you are the one in the lion's den, or you are the one called upon to build that ark. See, in a crisis, we don't need cliches. In a crisis, we don't need just generalized knowledge of God. In a crisis, we need to see the very power of the living God. So that leads me to ask each of us a question in today's podcast. When something terrible happens, when there's an incredible crisis personally in your life or nationally, as we saw on 9-11, what do we tend to do? What is our first reaction? Let's really be honest about this for a minute, because I know we all want to have a very godly response. You know, I run to the Lord in prayer. I seek Him faithfully in my deepest crisis. And I really do hope that's where we are in our walk with the Lord. I genuinely do. And yet often we can fall into what I've called before here on the podcast, Christian atheism, right? Which is this tendency to completely fall into panic and terror when something terrible happens to act as if there is no God, even though moments before we could have been praising Him. So one natural reaction, human reaction even, is panic and terror in the face of something terrible happening. Another thing that we may not easily admit is we can fall into this pattern of self-reliance, right? We can say, okay, something really bad happened, but I got this. I have a plan. I know what we're going to do. And we can get into this, I'm going to do this mode. I'm going to get this mode. We get into depending on ourselves. And yet another reaction we may have, and as I shared this message with these young people, I love their honesty because they fell a lot into this category. And I was talking to a group of largely teenagers, older teens, and they said, when something terrible like this happens, we fall into a pattern of anger. We get mad at ourselves. We get mad at the circumstances. We get mad at God even. They say they told me things like, God, here I am trying to do what's right, trying to follow you, and look what happens. Why is it you couldn't have protected me from this thing, knowing that I'm trying to do what's right? So for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to look at an entirely different reaction than panic, than self-reliance, than anger. We are going to look at what one king of Judah did in a particularly traumatic moment in his history and the history of the nation. That king of Judah's name was Jehoshaphat. Yeah, say that one three times fast. Jehoshaphat. His story is told in the book of Second Chronicles, and I want to give a quick background to Jehoshaphat. And we're going to look at, in particular, Second Chronicles 20. I encourage you that if you're listening to the podcast and are able to pull out your Bible, pause the podcast, read Second Chronicles 20 in its entirety. I'm not going to have time to do so on the podcast, but I'm going to emphasize a few particular verses. But by way of background, Jehoshaphat was overall a good king, right? He wanted to follow the ways of God, but he had sort of a nagging character flaw. Jehoshaphat tended to make wrong alliances with ungodly people when he thought it was going to help the nation. 
In particular, he aligned himself with the gnarly King Ahab of Israel. Those of you who are students of the scripture know King Ahab had a scary wife named Jezebel, and the two of them were up to really no good. They were very, very, very uh, seriously not following the ways of God. And so Jehoshaphat at one point arranges for his son to marry Ahab's daughter in his attempt to unify Israel and Judah. He relied on his own ingenuity, right? He relied on his own plans, his own alliances, and it got him into trouble. Hello, memo to self, message within the message before we get to the message. Trying to do things that seem right to us. There is a way that seems right to man, but the end of it is destruction. So he knows, Jehoshaphat knows he's not perfect, but he's genuinely trying at a moment when he gets some really, really scary news. Enemies of Judah are coming up against him and the nation and are coming up fast. The news is like, there is very little time to get your act together. Enemies are coming. And so we find in Second Chronicles 20, the detail of his story. But I want to read in particular verses three and four. Listen to this. And Jehoshaphat feared. If you have your Bible out, I'd underline that phrase. Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord. You might want to underline that one too. Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. From the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Now, I want to pause there and note three words in particular in verse three that I find are incredibly important. And Jehoshaphat feared. Listen, it's a big deal for the king of a nation to reveal that, you know, he's afraid that he needs help. That's not common with kings, right? See, normally when we're afraid, we can tend to do some pretty stupid stuff, right? Let's talk about that for a second. What can you tend to do when you are afraid? So often fear, that panic, that Christian atheism can then lead us to do things that would surprise us under normal circumstances. We can find ourselves freezing in place, being completely shut down when we know there's action we're supposed to take, we know there are things we're supposed to do, we can tend to freeze. Or fear can cause us to do the opposite. It can make you run from a circumstance, from a person, from a situation when you're supposed to lean in and stay. So fear can cause us to run when we're supposed to stay and stay when we're supposed to run. And in asking this question of some young people, they were really honest about it. They said that they can even fall into patterns where they lie to deal with situations that are very uncomfortable. In particular, when they're confronted with something they don't really want to face, they can tend to lie and say, that's not what I did. That's not what I meant. That's not who I am. And so there's a variety of things that we can do when we're afraid. But Unlike what we might do, what does Jehoshaphat do when he's afraid? Verse 4, he set himself to seek the Lord. Get this. The word seek in that verse means to trample underfoot. In other words, he is beating a path to God so frequently that it's like matted down ground. It's trampled underfoot. He is going to God as was his habit in other instances. We see it in 2 Chronicles 17 and other places. He goes to God. He is frequenting the path so often that he is doing it right away. In this moment, that's his go-to because it's what he's practiced. Don't we always say that on the podcast? You get really, really good at what you practice. If you get used to running to God in a situation of fear and terror and fright, that might very well be what you do when you need it most. 
And he doesn't just seek God in prayer. He actually declares a fast for the nation. He decides that they are going to deny the physical in order to connect more fully to the spiritual. So before this king does anything in facing his enemy, he begins with seeking the Lord. If that's a lesson that you're able to write down, write that down. Instead of making a ton of plans and then in hindsight asking God to bless your plans, begin with seeking the Lord. If you are wondering about whether or not you should date a certain person, marry a certain person, continue to have a deep friendship with a certain person, seek the Lord. Ask him. Don't do so in hindsight. Do so in advance. That's the first lesson here. Seek God first. But now in particular, let's look at how Jehoshaphat does that. This is critically important. Look at 2 Chronicles 20 verses 5 and 6. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? What strikes you about how Jehoshaphat is praying there? Think about it. He's not beginning with the problem. See, I have this thing when I seek the Lord. Sometimes I basically am like, Lord, this is the situation. And I run in and detail the the thing that I am terrified about, worried about, and really my prayer life becomes an extension of my worry. But Jehoshaphat doesn't do that. He begins with who he knows God to be. He says very clearly, you are God in heaven. Are you not God in heaven? Doesn't that remind you so clearly of when Jesus gave a model prayer to his disciples and he taught them to pray, our Father who art in heaven? See, Jehoshaphat begins by praying who he knows God to be. And isn't that so important given that we're in the names of God? You have learned so many things that you can use in your prayer life when you're addressing God. You can begin by reminding yourself that he's Jehovah Jireh, your provider, Jehovah Rapha, your healer. He's the good shepherd, Jehovah Ra. He's Jehovah Shammah, the one who is there. There are so many names of God that you can use in addressing him in your prayer life. And listen, if we begin by knowing who God is, we then are gaining perspective at the outset. If God is God in heaven, what on earth can possibly be too hard on him? If he's in heaven, is earth too hard? And if we pray the way Jehoshaphat prayed and we were reminded that he is faithful to our fathers, he's been faithful in the past, can't we then remind ourselves that he'll be faithful again? And if, as Jehoshaphat prayed, if he can rule over kingdoms, is there any enemy that he can't handle? Listen, Jehoshaphat isn't praying like this because God needs the information, that God needs to be reminded that God is in heaven or that he has authority over the affairs of men. He really is praying it to rehearse it in his own mind, to gain perspective for himself, to give a reminder to those listening. This is my question to us today on the podcast. Do we know God like this? Do we know his real power, his real sovereignty? And maybe to ask the question more personally, do you have a personal knowledge of God's history in your own life? Would you be able to sit there in your prayer closet and say, God, I know you were faithful in this and in this and when that happened and when this happened. 
I know that you are faithful then and you'll be faithful again. See, if you don't have that, how can you develop it? How can you develop the sense of history of God's track record in your life? They did this in scripture, and we see countless examples of men and women of God reminding themselves of what God did. If you look at these magnificats of Mary or of Hannah or of Miriam, you see these songs erupting where they're singing back to God his faithfulness in their lives. They turn it into a song. And don't you remember everything you hear set to music? I can go into a store this season as we're shopping and doing things, and I can hear the first two notes and know all of the words of the song because music helps me remember. So they put things to songs so they could remember. And listen, in the book of Joshua, God told the people to take 12 stones from the Jordan River to remember God allowing them to cross it over on dry land. See, they didn't just cross the Red Sea on dry land. They crossed the Jordan, entering the promised land on dry land. And so God told them to put a stone of remembrance in that place. You know the hymn where it says about raising our Ebenezer. The word Ebenezer means stone of help. The first three letters, E-B-E-N, means stone, and Ezer, E-Z-E-R, means help, stone of help. So it's not just the first name of Ebenezer Scrooge in the Christmas carol that we may be reading or watching this time of year. It's a stone of help. It helps us to remember. That's why his first name is so fitting as he's reminded of all of the things of the past and shown the things of the present and the things to come. God wants us to remember that he has helped us. And listen, when we remember, it gives us the ability to face the next thing. See, when David faced Goliath, he said, I remember that God helped me defeat the lion and the bear when I was a mere shepherd boy watching over sheep. So if God could help me with a lion and a bear, he can help me with Goliath that stands before me. Listen to me. You need to develop this sense of history of what God has done in your life. It's critically important. Journal it. Put it to song, however you might remember. And every time God is faithful, every time you experience Jehovah Ra or Shama or Jehovah Nisi, whenever you are experiencing these things, write it down so you can remember and you can pray to God the way Jehoshaphat did. Listen to me. If God is in heaven... We can be confident of this. Earth will never have the last word. Your crisis that you're dealing with is never the final word. Do you know that even if something costs you your very life on earth, believer in Jesus, that is not the final word. Your life goes on. And it goes on eternally in heaven. See, that's why it's amazing that Jehoshaphat is going on about God in this passage, because really he's the whole time, the first several verses of his prayer are about God, about what God is capable of doing. He doesn't get to his own crisis, his own problem until verse 12 here in Second Chronicles 20. All of that stuff he's praying all along is about God, not about his problem. But let's look at the problem, okay? Verse 12, read this with me. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that's coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. 
He is stating the fact. We do not know what to do. Beloved, is there an area of your life where you just don't know what to do? You don't know if you should go to this college or that college. You don't know how to pay these bills. You don't know how to raise this particularly strong-willed child. You don't know what to do. But the fact is, that's so often the case, but we do know who does know what to do. See, it's so easy to look at and magnify the problem. And basically, Jehoshaphat is saying, I'm not going to look at the enemy. I'm going to look at you, God. Our eyes are on you. That's what he says. Our eyes are upon you. That's the next question I really want us to probe together. What are your eyes on? What are you looking at? What are you spending most of your time thinking about? Are you magnifying your problem? I'm worried about this. and I'm worried about that. And there's like this crushing negativity in your life because all your eyes are on is the problem or how you feel. Listen, it's a trap to only talk about how you feel all day. I actually was convicted of this very recently when I say words like, I feel this and I feel that and I feel this. That means my life is governed. My eyes are on how I feel about everything. And listen, if your eyes are on what others have or what other people are doing, you are going to fall into a massive trap. See, your eyes may not be on the problem per se or how you feel. Your eyes may be really on other people. Gosh, I wish I had her household or I wish I had his job or I wish I had her promotion or I wish. And there's so much danger in comparing ourselves to other people. If you want to know the trap of this, read Psalm 73. I got to teach it at a retreat a couple years ago and it was a game changer for me. I encourage you to go read Psalm 73, how Asaph's foot could have stumbled because his eyes were on other people. But God, but God gave him a reset in Psalm 73. If your eyes are on other people, you will be consistently disappointed. You're going to be disappointed in them, in yourself, in your circumstances. If your eyes are on your circumstances, you're going to sink under them. There's enough problems in one day for any one of our lives to just never, ever want to get out of bed and move on. So what does it mean to actually put our eyes on the Lord instead of other people or circumstances or how we feel? What does it mean to put your eyes on the Lord practically? Listen, you cannot have your eyes on the Lord apart from your eyes being in his word. I'm going to say that again. You cannot have your eyes on the Lord apart from your eyes being in his word. You cannot say my eyes are on the Lord unless you have a deeply sincere and consistent prayer life. Jehoshaphat is praying from a place of prayer. Remember, seeking the Lord means trampling underfoot. The path to God is well-worn in Jehoshaphat's case. Is it in yours? Is it in mine? We also can't say that our eyes are on the Lord if we're not interested in seeking sound counsel from godly people. If you're getting your advice from, you know, your horoscope, You might be, no, you're not might. You are in the wrong place. You need counsel from godly people in your life. You need to be willing to receive sound counsel. Psalm 121 verses 1 and 2 puts it this way, I will lift my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Listen, again, it's eyes up. 
Our eyes are on you. Psalm 121 says, our eyes are to the hills. Where does it come from? The Lord who made those hills. Psalm 25 verse 15 says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. He will pluck my feet out of the net. My eyes are toward the Lord. And then if you want a New Testament example of our eyes being on the Lord, this verse is critical. Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You look to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of your faith. Hear me on this, believer. He who began a good work in you, Philippians tells us, is able to complete it. If he started something good in you, you don't have to take it upon yourself to finish it. Look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. He started writing your book. You can rest assured he will finish it. But lastly here, these lessons from Jehoshaphat's prayer in 2 Chronicles 20, I want to look at three verses in particular, verse 15, verse 17, and verse 21. Let's read these together. Verse 15 says, And he said, Listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. So the prophet is speaking the word to Jehoshaphat, and he says, Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. I love that so much. The battle is not yours, but God's. And look at verse 17. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. I know verse 17 is a word to one of us right now. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves and stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And then verse 21, And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord for his mercies endure forever. I'm going to get to the real lesson in verse 21, but let's remember the command is to stand still. And look, I feel like that's the hardest thing for some of us to do. No, no, no. Forget some of us. It's the hardest thing for me to do. I have fallen into trap after trap, as I'll be talking about in our next edition of the podcast, as I'm looking at God being my righteousness. I fall into a trap of doing before I sit still and seek the Lord. I can tend to run ahead of him. I'm a person of action. I see a problem and I devise 12 different solutions before lunch. And God wants me to be still and know that he is God. That's Psalm 4610. For those of you who don't have it memorized, be still and know that I am God. That word be still, it doesn't mean don't do anything. It means stop striving, stop fussing. We seek the Lord for direction on how to tackle this and that and the other situation. And look, it's the hardest thing for many of us to do because so many of our circumstances scream, take action right now. I had a period of time, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, where really, really horrendous things were being said about me, probably in large part because of that big personality, that take action type nature of mine. 
And it hurt me so badly because it wasn't true. My heart is to do right and to do good and to love people. And I want to be judged based on my good intentions, right? Don't we all? But in that period of time, God was really showing me not to speak, not to defend myself, not to fight to be heard, not to call a meeting and say, this is what you're saying about me and this is what you're saying about me and and I want to get it all out in the open. God taught me to be silent, to stand still, and to wait to have those conversations when he opened the door in the right time, in the right place. He wanted me to stand still and watch him fight for me to do the work in hearts so I wasn't demanding to be heard and defended. That's not an easy place for most of us to be. We want justice. We want fairness. And hear me, standing still doesn't mean you're not doing anything. Notice what they do. That's what verse 21 was. They praise God before the answer even comes. See, Here comes the army of Judah, right? Thousands of men armed for battle. But who's at the head of those armies? It's not the scouts or archers or warriors or an infantry or mighty men that you might imagine in a typical war-like situation. No, the choir is leading the way. The worship team is leading the way. And the strategy seems to be absolutely suicidal to me. Because in the first place, they're giving up all hope of surprise. Isn't war about the element of surprise? Even a deaf person could hear this army coming, y'all. Even a deaf person could. So there's something strange that is going on here. God is leading them. Basically, he's saying, praise me before the answer even comes. Guys, that's what God wants us to do. He doesn't want us to just stand still and that means don't do anything. While you're waiting on God in your particular situation, get into a very good habit of praising him even before the answer comes. When you are confused, praise him for the answers he already has given you and the ones you know are coming. When you are overwhelmed and you don't know what to do, praise God. God. You know, if you're looking at a mound of things you're behind on, if you're an at-home mom, you're behind on the laundry or a homeschooler, you're behind on all the grading and the schooling, or you're behind on this or that project that you said you would complete, praise God that you even have those problems. My girlfriend for years, you know, she used to praise God for having a lot of laundry because it meant she had children in her house that were using the clothes. Praise him even now. Praise him before the answer comes. That's what Jehoshaphat does. In obedience to the word that God gave him, he leads with the choir, with the worship team. That's my exhortation to us today, right now. Eyes up, praise first. Eyes up, praise first. I hope that you enjoyed today's Lanyap edition of Rinse and Repeat. I'm Carol Iscaros. You can reach out to me anytime at caroliscaros at gmail.com. That's caroliscaros at gmail.com. You can also find me on social media. I'm on Instagram and on Facebook. Maiden name is Morgan, so you can look me up at Carol Morgan Iscaros. And it would be an honor to connect with you to hear how these lessons are helping you to take your questions on the podcast, we're soon going to have a feature, sort of a, a Q&A, 
where I'm going to try to tackle some of the hard questions that may be coming in Christian living and Bible questions. It's my favorite thing in the world to dig into the scriptures and to learn what they have to say about our everyday lives. And God has really given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So I really encourage you to get in touch with me. I'd be happy to answer your questions. And I really do hope that you will consider sharing Rinse and Repeat with friends. You can copy links on your social media. Tell folks what the podcast has meant to you. If there's a particular lesson, be sure to share that and encourage others to tune in. And I really do hope that you will take a moment and join me next time for Rinse and Repeat.